0: So we're gonna read this evening from Matthew 16, um, from verse 13 to 22, and I say this just so that you can get your Bibles ready. Um, so, yeah, there might be some Bibles at the back. There was ESVs, but somebody stole them. So if you read them at home, keep it. But if you if you don't read them, bring them back. Um, they might be in the bookshelves, but but just look, you you might find it maybe. So, yeah, our, if, if, you, if you want a Bible, just put up your hand. Uh, I see, uh, yeah, Patrick found them. The text is Matthew 16 from verse 13 to 22. So, we are busy with a series, Angels and Demons, um, and I would like you to, to encourage you to go listen to Anna's sermon again last week. Um, uh, She she spoke on demons and the reality of demons as entities that seek to destroy our lives and bring us under the dominion of Satan. So our topic for this evening is spiritual warfare, and more specifically, um, the the role the church has to play in spiritual warfare. So, but before we start, I I just want to give us a bit of an introduction again, um, and some qualifiers. and. The, the reason for this is that this is a very big topic, um, spiritual warfare. The, the moment I opened my Bible, I kind of, once you start asking this question of the text, it's everywhere. Um, and it's a major doctrine. Now, what do I mean with that? I mean it is a truth that influences Many of the other truths we believe in, it influences soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation, how are we saved, it influences ecclesiology, uh, the church that we, we're just going to be busy with, Hammer theology, the, the doctrine of, of, of sin. So it, it's just all over the place, it touches on everything that we believe, um, what, what, what is going on in the spiritual realm, for God is spirit, and, and therefore uh, it is, it's a daunting topic, but... It is also a very cool, cool topic, so I hope we can, we can learn a bit from, from this. And, and for that reason, I thought it, it's a good idea to maybe just go back and, and look at four points that Anna brought up and kind of use that again as just something of a lens to, to focus forward in. Um, so the first thing is that we are at war. Uh, as a community, we must guard against being substitious, as C.S. Lewis put it. So it's either superstitious, it's believing too much in demons and looking for them everywhere and, and kind of spending more time with the darkness than with the light. But I think uh, we really, as a community, have way more of this problem um, that we, we hear the texts and I think as Protestants in our background, we've, we've learned a lot of, yeah, yeah, we recognize spiritual warfare, we, rec- we recognize the devil, but the moment we, we fall into our lives, the moment we fall into our jobs, it's just something very far away. It's something that we don't think we, we really experience, or it's alien. It's, it's, it's something very far from us. But the fact is that we are in a war, um, and I'm going to ground this a little bit with scripture. This is good systematic theology in any case, if If you want to know what what a certain topic is, then you look at what the whole Bible says about it. So so get ready for a few texts. Um, And the first one is in Ephesians 6.12. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So... So this this war is everywhere. Um, if, if you if you're gonna be a student of scripture, you're gonna see the devil in Genesis three, um, and you're gonna see him uh, being thrown into hell in uh, well his first loss is in, in Revelation twelve, and it's mentioned in other places, and then in, again in Revelation twenty. But it's it's there's not one New Testament um, writer that does not. Uh, p- profoundly and deeply speak on it. Jude, James, um, Paul, Peter, every last one of them, and Jesus, he speaks about it. So, well, if you if you open your text again, just look out for anything uh, in line with the demonic or, or the spiritual, and I'm sure you're going to see a lot of it. The other thing of this is, this war is almost like, picture the Ukraine. They They didn't choose it. It's not it, it just happens, and you can try and ignore it up until uh, a shell comes through your window and you and then it 's not so fun anymore so so for us, there is consequences to this as well. The second point i I want to get to is we 're not just in this war but our main enemy is the Satan um, and what is the goal of the satan he He tried to attack God, but of course he, he couldn 't win that battle, and we have a nice little um, story in Revelation twelve, um, but then his second target is we who are made in the image of God, so he hates us as as the bearers of god ima- god 's image, and if he cannot destroy God, he can destroy us. We are the casualties in this war um, that is That is something that we need to know. listen to revelation twelve twelve it 's the only verse i 'm reading there it says. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has, uh, that he has a short time. So it's this idea again that the devil is on a leash, and there's a time um, for us as believers, a tasting time almost, um, to find out in which one of these kingdoms we, we belong So, if his his primary goal is to destroy us and to bring us into his dominion, what is his primary strategy? And that strategy is deception. Now, we can uh, pick this up. I think I love Jesus' words on this the most. In John 8, verse 34, he says, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. He speaks his native tongue when he lies. That is the word so so primarily, this is what we will see throughout it's not i, I don 't want to discredit last week Anna spoke on the incident with the demonic and the legion of demons that that fell into uh, this demonic and and so his life was just destroyed, he manifested but but that is not really what we we see the primary goal of Satan is um, rather think of a, another incident um, if we if we look at a Judas, and the, the devil entered him, and then he didn't start manifest and crawl into a corner or something. I don't know who of you saw Dune, but I think it was very specific, uh, that image of the Archonan Lord that crawls up into the corner um, and, and looks very demonic. That's not what we see. We see him going to the Pharisees, and he betrays Jesus. It's deception. It is an attack on, on uh, character and the gospel. That is the primary attack that we see. So, and then I just wanna uh, give a a final qualifier um, or something to think on before we get into our text, and that is that there is no neutral ground. You are either a slave to the kingdom of darkness or a slave or uh, a willing servant to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God. And this may feel a bit weird for us. We may say, no, you know, I, I don't really buy it. I think they might be neutral ground. And, and I think maybe one of the best ways to, uh, to describe this for us is, is in worldliness. So when Paul uses the word worldliness, um, he means the systems in a world that are out of sync from the kingdom of God. So... What is different about worldliness is that it takes on multiple cultural forms um, I'm sorry, just lost my place there. Cultural forms that disagree with each other. um, But from the perspective of God, they are all wrong. So you can have an atheistic worldview, an amoral worldview, a materialistic worldview, Um, That fits very well with our secular um, Marketplace of ideas or worldviews things that you that you can buy and at some points they might even disagree Um, It's become quite popular this vein of spirituality that's returned uh, for for the the Western world every uh, I Spoke to my atheistic neighbor and she said no she doesn't really believe in, in God or anything but if you press a little bit then Strangely enough, she starts to bring up spiritual things that she, that she likes or believes in. Her whole house is full of Buddha, so she doesn't believe in it, and, and yet she, she cannot quite say that there is no evil. Uh, she cannot say there is no morality. She cannot, she cannot just place it and say, um, you know what, I'm just okay with, with a naturalistic worldview. So we see this, this bleeding into our, our modern minds and, and our ideas. So... The thing is, whether you, it's Buddhism or any of these worldviews, um, they might clash. But in God's eyes, all of them are in contrast to his. All of them are from the kingdom of darkness. And for us, we swim in these ideas. So it's like oxygen. Um, and, and when we practice some of them, we are so exposed to a lot of these things that we do not realize that sometimes we actually act in accordance to what the devil thinks is good um, or bad (laughs) for that matter Um, and so we buy into this thing that if we are not for God we are against God we we are fighting against him Uh, again in this passage of John 44 where Jesus speaks to the Pharisees he says to them you are children of the devil he is your father and he means this to to quite uh, Jesus never jokes around with things like these Um, so he says and your will is to do your father's desires. It's this, this thing that our flesh and, and, and uh, in the world we, we get seduced and we think in these systems that this is the way that things are supposed to be. Um, which maybe speaks a little bit on the authorities um, and maybe I think Johannes is covering that next week. So this is, this is the four points per introduction. We are at war with the devil, one, two... The goal is to destroy us and to draw us into his uh, dominion or his kingdom. Three, the primary strategy is by means of deception. And fourth, there is no neutral ground. You're either on the side of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the devil. So now we can, we can get into our text. Um, it's Matthew 16:13 to 22. I'm gonna read for us. blessed are you Simon son of Jonah for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my father in heaven and i tell you that you are peter or petros and on this rock on this petra i will build my church and the gates of hades will not overcome it i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Welcome to church. (laughs) Um, So, I want us to to drag out three points when we think about church and we think about this text uh, from, from this text. Um, and with when we think about spiritual warfare, the first is the establishment of the church. The second is going to be um, the mandate that the church has that it is protected and the mandate for the church um, to, to, um, to force spiritual warfare. And the third is um, the attack on... The cross and the gospel uh, and we will find an an incident of that in the text and we'll make it later a little bit more practical but I think already out of these things um, you'll find your clarity on a few things. So before we we get fully into just understanding this text we of course need to look at the setting. where is this uh, Caesarea Philippi? What was this place? What was the significance of it? And I just want us to get the picture on the projector. There it is. So uh, that is uh, Philippi today, and you can see the water. You can see there's a a big black hole, a cave there, and there's still a shrine there um, that you can see. So that is how it looks today. But this place was, um, it was quite a, a mystic place, a majestic place. If you think of the Victoria Falls in Africa, I don't know if, if any of you have been, or the Niagara Falls, it's, um, it's a place that really got your attention. And the reason is, what we there see is just a, a weak little stream. But in the time of Jesus, um, they spouted water out of that cave and it fed the Jordan River. Um, it still feeds the Jordan River, it's one of the main sources. It, it's just um, in the Byzantine time, around and, uh, 360 AD, um, or CE if you want, um, there was an earthquake, and this earthquake, um, it basically just changed the, the whole under, underground works. And, and what we are left with now is a little stream. But in that time, there was just this water gushing out of this place, and um, we know it it was the significant um, because we find um we, uh, there's a lot of clues that 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 gives us this information um, For one, the place is named after Caesar Caesar augustus so if you if you ever uh, read Caesarea, that's a place that's named for the Caesars. And it, is na- it was named by Philip, the son of Herod the Great, who was this great builder. Um, and um, so, so he built three temples to, uh, to the Caesar. And uh, for the Caesars, emperor worship was a thing. They were basically the son of God. There's another sermon on that. We're not going to do that this evening. But emperor worship was a real thing. So he built out of marble this, this um, temple and he called them um, augustiums so, so we know that this place is equated uh, to, at, at least in the Bible, in our biblical sense, it was named here Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. Philippi. Um, but also we know that Alexander the Great passed by here and worshipped here. It was a great Greek pagan worship site um, it was named, and our name today still derives from that, uh, Paneus after the god Pan, um, and Pan uh, is the. It was it was thought that this is his, uh, that this this place was his birthplace. So he was a Greco-Roman god. He's got another name, uh, Faunus. Maybe I think the word Faun might come also from him. Um, So he was the the god of nature, the fields, forests, mountains, flocks, and shepherds, interestingly enough. There's a bad story about him and shepherds, Um, but we'll leave it. You can ask me afterwards. Um, And so the sanctuary was built there for him. uh, And a lot of sacrifice happened there, specifically at the entrance of this cave, for for Pan, and it was also an offering place for other gods, but but the main focus was him. It might also be where we get the modern sentiment, this idea of how the devil looks. Nowhere in, in scripture do we have like uh, this picture of the horns and, and and the buck, but but he had he was basically a fawn, a buck. Um, so if if you've seen the cartoon Hercules, uh, the little goat that they make a joke of, that's him. Um, it's where we get the word panic from. Um, so it, it, it's, it's very much bled into our culture even um, that if, it, if he had such a big influence on the Greeks, uh, we still feel the repercussions of how that culture kind of accepted him and how they offered it to him. Another, okay, so, so we have these, a culmination of things. On top of that, um, this area, it's now Syria, but there was a lot of bull worship as well in the area. So what is Jesus doing there? Why? why it is interesting, it's, it's closer to the end of his ministry. We don't see him going to heal someone there or, or uh, driving out demons. Um, and it's 65 kilometers north. And it almost feels to me like he's pulling a Jonah. He's supposed to go to the cross almost at this point, And he's like going the opposite direction. Uh, he's heading north with his disciples for a day and a half. Why? Why would he go to this specific place? Um, and, of course, with Jesus, he, there's no such mistake. He knows where he's supposed to go. But, uh, basically, before he heads to Jerusalem, he goes first to this place with his disciples. And he goes here to ask two questions. That's, that's what he does. He, he goes here and he asks his that's, – that's at least the narrative context that we have. Um, he asks his disciples, who do the people say? I am? Um, interesting enough, Jews. But then he also asks or from a Jewish context um, and then he asks who do you say I am and Peter answers you are the son of God he basically acknowledges that he is God you'd think um 16 chapters in Peter would know this but but this is actually a, a huge marker that that Peter knows this and and Jesus recognizes that these this is a deeper knowledge he says um it's my Father that has made this known to you. And Jesus makes much of his answer. He, he changes his name. He says, your name is no longer, um, um, uh, what is it? Simon, Simon Peter. Um, yeah, Cephas is also the other word for Peter. Um, so Petros is Greek. Um, and he calls him Petros. And he says, and on this Petra, on this rock, I will build my church. A rock, something very stable. Um, So what is fascinating here is this is the first time that the word church is used in Scripture. Uh, The word ecclesia doesn't exist. There is no church. What what we have here this evening, um, it was more just loose disciples and home cells and people going around uh, at that point. So what is Jesus doing here? He is establishing the church. He is saying, um, Peter on this testimony that I am the only truth amongst all these other truths, these marketplace of ideas, these other worldviews, this is the only truth. Um, this is the only um, thing that you need to know, that I am God. I am the ruler of, of this world ultimately. So that is what we, we have there. Um, I want to to frame it maybe a little bit more. Um, I'm going to just kind of repeat, but but more structured. I'm I'm reading for us. Um, Christ establishes the church, but he does it in juxtaposition to all the other spiritual powers, all the marketplace of ideas and worldviews. It is significant that Jesus chose to ask this uh, immensely profound question here, since there was a few areas in the entire world with more religious importance. This was, um, this was an area filled with the temples of ancient Syrian ball worship. Historians have identified at least 14 such temples in the area. Thus, it was a place beneath the shadow of the ancient gods. And just think about it. Jesus was standing on a road in an area littered with the temples of the Syrian gods, a place where the Greek gods looked down, a place where the most important a river in Judaism uh, sprang, sprang to life. And a place where the marble splendor of the home of Caesar worship dominated the landscape. And here, of all places, he stands and he asks men who they believe him to be. So, it, it just I want to solidify this, that... For today, we still have these same marketplaces, these, these same ideas. I think it, for us, many people will say, well, you know, Buddhism, Islam, everybody seems kind of moral. How, what's the difference? Um, but, but Jesus says this is no new idea. Uh, we are, we've always been in um, this deception of truth, and, and he is the only truth. So, so he establishes his church. This brings me to my next main point, which is Christ mandates the protection of the church, and also he gives uh, the authority, the mandate uh, for the church for spiritual warfare. Um, and what we see is it's not only uh, the, uh, all these temples and things that are there. There is also the gates of Hades, the gates to the underworld, the dead and the demonic. And Jesus states, That it will not overcome the assembly, the the coming together, this church will not be overcome um, by these um, demonic forces. And what is interesting again is the place that we just saw, that cave, is also it was believed to be a portal to the underworld, a gate to the underworld. Um, So he takes them there and he makes this very profound spiritual point. He says you are under attack and but don't worry the gates of hell the onslaught of hell it, uh, the word is stated in in an offensive way um, will not prevail against you so so Christ mandates the protection in community but the second thing he does is he says he gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven he states whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed um, in heaven, or shall have been loosed. Now, this is a very complicated Greek uh, text. And also, we don't find this really in many other places. We find the keys of heaven only here. And uh, uh, this, this idea of loosing and binding, we find in Matthew 18, two chapters further. And I think that is where we should get more information from. What does it mean? Because we don't want to overstate what, what it means. Um, if God gives authority, what authority is he giving? If, he, if he's saying you have the keys to heaven, what does that mean? Um, and, and theologians have been to and fro on this for a very long time. But I think if we look at Paul and if we look at Matthew 18, there is some indication of, of what this might mean. And when we look at the Matthew 18 passage, we find that it has to do with community. It's it's kind of sandwiched between two pieces of community. One is uh, is, is the church discipline, and the other one is asking for blessings from God. So the, the discipline says you start off alone. And then as it escalates, it comes before the church. And if this person is unrepented, we are to cast him out. Paul loves to say to hand over someone to Satan. Do you recognize that language, um, that it is very spiritual? To hand him over to the other kingdom. He's not fighting for us. He's fighting against us. So, so it's not just, uh, I, I think that a lot of times people are angry that we throw people out of church. But it's basically just saying you are free. Um, Go and do what you what you do, and you do not have the privileges of this community. Um, so that's in the one sense there is authority given in that regard. And in the second, um, it says, also a, com- a communal statement, an assembly statement. It says that whatever you ask, where two or more is in my name, um, ask whatever you want, and I will do it for you. So, God. God says you will be blessed inside this community. It's normative that if you ask something alone, maybe you won't receive it. But if you if you stand with someone, with a Christian, um, a Christian brother, then you have the mandate and the authority to build and to carry out, out what you need to do. I, I think it is for me a very funny thing because we think uh, you know you you do nothing in isolation you either work for someone or you work for your client um your money you can try and work for yourself it it doesn't quite work you can maybe you can produce for yourself but we are creatures in community and the normative way of the kingdom is community um I think this is, this is so for a few reasons. One, it keeps us accountable. Um, if you've said to someone, listen, I think we should do this, then the chances are very good you're going to do it. Um, against if you just kind of keep it to yourself and decide, am I going to do this or not? Um, so that's the one. I think the other thing is... Um, I, I think I should say something on prayer quickly. I wasn't quite planning on it, but Tony Christine is here, so, so we have... <laughs> uh, and it's spiritual warfare. Um, so, to ask something of God to pray makes it safe for God to give us things. If you pray, it is safe for God to give you something. And why is this the case? Because, again, there is accountability. You, you have to ask God something... And then you know where it came from, and you know uh, the terms for it. Uh, So you cannot then claim it from from some or another place. Because God can give things, and He does, without you asking. But when we ask, we are in close relationship, and we are tied with Him. We are the body uh, of Christ, and in that, um, we can build with Him. So, yeah, so... This mandate, what, what is it to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven? This debate kind of is between two schools. One makes it more legislative and the other one is more judicial. Like we can judge what needs to happen with people. And it, it's not a very popular thing. Judgment is left to God. And at the same time, the, the legislative school I don't think is is much better. It, it It's to set up rules for um, for people, how the church is, is to operate. Um, but in both cases, I think it is true that this spiritual warfare is actually um, built on the confession of Peter. And in um, acting out who God is, conforming to God, I think that is what prayer does as well for us. It conforms us to God and from that stance, um, we have the authority, the mandate, and the power to stand against, and not just to stand against, but attack into darkness. And how do we do this? I think primarily we do this um, by the gospel, by a statement, as as Peter said, "You are the Christ. You are God." Um, and I want to I want to back this a little bit. Um, just find myself here. We, we see this mandate that is given to people um, in two other places, but I think before we get to that, I, I just want to say, why does Jesus do this here and now? Why does he now give, establish the church, and why does he now give this power to this church uh, to, to actually wage war? Why, why does he do it here? And our answer is in the text, um, it reads from verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Uh, this is a very direct statement of what is going to happen to Jesus. And it's the first time he does this. He does this only three times in the synoptic gospels so what and, and the text I, I love it when they put in the word as well on from that time on he started to declare i'm finishing my ministry i am handing over to the church i'm establishing the church to continue the work um and we see this in this is very much in line with other texts matthew 28:19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Or here is another one in Romans ten, thirteen to fifteen. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have in, in whom in <laughs> how then will they call on him in how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are saint? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the euangelion, the gospel. Um, that is our primary work and defense against darkness. Um, and I think we will clarify that a little bit more uh, when we get to to the cross spot. so uh, this fits for me perfectly with Peter's confession by acknowledging who God is and that, that, that Christ is God and he's Lord he Christ says with this I can make a rock and a rock is something that is strong it, it, it can face onslaughts and and so this picture is I think just very profound for the church. Um, so this brings us to my final point, at least when we try to exegete this text a little bit, uh, and that is how Peter reacts to, to Jesus. Peter is just given this authority. Um, he, he might think himself uh, the leader of the church. The Roman Catholics definitely uh, take this, church, uh, this text to do this. Um, and But what he then does is he confronts Christ. He rebukes Christ. Um, it's not a physical attack that we see. It is in deception. Peter is deceived. Uh, so it is demonic, and, and Jesus uh, sees this. So what happens? Uh, Peter says to him, you will not go to the cross. You will, you will not go to death. Um, we will build your kingdom here. This is, this is the plan. But Jesus then goes on and calls him Satan. He says, Satan get behind me. And there's a very nice little clue in there. Jesus only once ever calls someone else Satan uh, prior to this. It's also in Matthew 4. He, it's basically Satan. He says to Satan, get behind me. And uh, Satan, get away from me. It's the same words that he's, that he's used here, that he says to Peter, get behind me. Why such a strong wording? Have When last did you call any of your friends Satan? Um, like, <laughs> stop it, Satan. Satan. Um, it, it means that he is so. Um, there's something that he, that's happening that's that's really important to him. That he finds it necessary enough to rebuke Peter in this way, and and basically the attack is to keep Jesus from the cross. Now, God is safe. Um, not that Satan cannot conquer God. But for us, where the war is so raging, if the cross never happens then there is no salvation for us. So this is the road that Jesus needs to walk in. In that sense, he uses very much the same language. In, in a, a, not taking the kingdoms that Satan offers, but saying, this is the road that I must walk. This, this road of suffering I need to do to buy you out. And therefore, it is the gospel, the cross, that he is being attacked. Um, and this is also, I think, our, our primary method of, of speaking into darkness, fighting back. So the summation of of the section is just Jesus establishes the church um, as Peter, uh, on on Peter's testimony, and he starts to end these earthly ministry. Second, the church will withstand the war, um, a war against it, and it can fight back. And third, Jesus withstands a spiritual onslaught and an attack on the cross and the gospel. And... Now I just want to bring us into four more points where I want to reflect a little bit deeper on this. What does it mean then for us as the Aluach dialogue to to think on on this passage? How how is this more practical for us? And uh, so, so, so four points. The the first is that we must we must work on community. We must focus on community because this is the this is the primary vehicle that God has given. For spiritual warfare. Um, and I, I want to just hammer that in a little bit. Satan, his device is to deceive and to isolate and, and then to destroy. So, um, in The Art of War from Sun Chu, he gives this, this common strategy, and it is to win war by dividing and conquering. So, to, to break people up, to, to create division to create dislikes in community uh, is, is a strategy of Satan. And then when you're isolated, he, he attacks. Um, there's this this piece that I read, um, an article by Lieutenant Colonel Tom Vance, um, and he's in an air force base in Montana. And uh, he writes a little bit on, on camaraderie, he says, my daughter, age six, has a very remarkable sense of camaraderie shared amongst Air Force members since she was two years old. Every time she encountered an Air Force member in uniform, she would inquire, is that your friend, Daddy? Naturally, I always responded in the affirmative. And it's this, just this beautiful picture um, that everyone in the Army are friends. And I sometimes wonder, do you see your fellow congregants, your fellow church member, your fellow Christians as friends? Are you positive when you, when you speak about them? Do you recognize that they are the enablers to your successes as well? Um, do you have that? Uh, and I think actually we need to be, be more repentant on this because Scripture uses stronger language. It doesn't just say friends. It says we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but I think this is this is something that you need to to challenge. You need to to think. How do you see the church? The church. How do you perceive that? Is, is these your friends or aren't they? Quite a challenging little piece from a six-year-old. Um, the second thing I I want us to think on is the main tactic of deception and what that might mean for us um, uh, on a more general basis. Um, so. Why deception? I think because God's most primary, one of his most primary characteristics is that of truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. The spirit is many times named the spirit of truth. Um, And the classical definition of truth is what corresponds with reality, what is really true. And the Satan tries to, to draw us, of course, away from that. So what are lies that, that we might believe? And I think one that kind of comes from the text is that it must go well with you. So when Peter, now getting all this power and this authority, the first thing he thinks to do is to say to God, you will not suffer. Um, things will go well with us. Uh, and that is, that is maybe uh, a lie that even if we're not, we we don't believe the prosperity gospel. We can't help, but almost pray in a paganistic sense. Oh, God, you know, my money is really tight. Um, yeah, not relationship. My money is tight. Um, or and I think there, there's some tr- some fairness and truth in it. But but what we do is we we grab onto other things, other idols for our salvation. This is this is the lies that that are uh, told to us. Um, I think there, there are many others, but I'm, I'm not going to expand on, on, on more. Um, maybe we can reflect on it later. Um, so a third thing is that we need to be a confessional community, um, an inward confessional community, that this is again a strength of the church as community. And I want to read for us a piece from Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. Confession is, is a difficult discipline. For us, because we all too often view the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see them as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sins. We, um, we cannot bear to reveal our failures and our shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and we live veiled lies and, uh, and lives of hypocrisy. Um, and, yeah, that, that should, if, if, if you haven't been challenged, that is a challenge. Find someone, find a Christian brother that you can practice to live a, a life in, in the light, an open life. Um, I think this is something that we really struggle with. Um, and if you, if inside of that you will find freedom, but more than freedom you will find confidence. You, if we can practice this inwardly in the church, then we will have the confidence um, and the attractiveness for the outside world. We will be more attractive for others outside. So if we practice confession and living in the light amongst one another, then we will, will be able to do it much better um, outwardly. And so finally, I just want to to bring us to this point that, that the ultimate weapon we have is the gospel. It is this truth that God has already conquered. Um, it is the confession of Peter that, that Jesus is the son of God. And uh, when he in- inaugurates the church, he, he gives them this truth. So we know then that Jesus has also already overcome the cross. We're on the other side of the cross. We, we don't sit in the fear where Peter sits um, and the disciples. Our ultimate truth is the gospel. And I just want to read us two texts to solidify that for us. It's Hebrews 2 verse 14. Christ took on human nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. I like how he qualifies it. He, just, he doesn't just say death. He says the devil. Um, and then we have Colossians 2 verse 15. God dismantled the principalities and the powers and made a public example of them triumphing over them. In other words, the decisive blow was struck at Calvary. When Jesus went to the cross, we had our victory. The church can now bring people into the kingdom of heaven. We are the vehicle for that. Um, So in summation, we need to practice the value of community. We need to be aware of the devil's scheme um, of deception. We need to live uh, lives of confession. Um, And our ultimate victory is found in the the, the truth, the gospel truth. Um, I would just like to pray for us, and then, then we can end this evening. Father, you know that we find ourselves in this present darkness thank you that you have given us a community and weapons to fight against our adversary the devil you make our hands strong for war against the powers and the principalities of this current age help us as we seek to fight the good fight worthy of your kingdom that comes I pray that we really today as a church um, starts a new page and and that, that something really changes in us that we especially um, seek to to build community with one another. Um, I pray for those also outside of the church, our loved ones, and even for the world that are lost, I pray that we will be better carriers of your truth in this gospel so that we can bring light and change into this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.